We start with the provincial government declaring a wildfire state of emergency. I predicted yesterday this was coming. Here is the announcement yesterday by B.C. Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth. Based on the advice of emergency management and wildfire officials and my briefing last night on the worsening weather, I am declaring a provincial state of emergency. This will address the potential for a mass evacuation scenario and provide our government with the means to secure the accommodation spaces necessary to support evacuees. Our government has seen incredible cooperation with the private sector and all levels of government, and I fully expect that to continue. But this measure will ensure that the province can do what is necessary moving forward. Okay, Farnworth, uh, speaking yesterday, said the emergency declaration will help the government to respond quickly to changing fire patterns, including the possibility of large-scale evacuations, as you heard him describe there. The reaction from many leaders in the B.C. interior can be summed up in one word. Finally, finally, they've been asking for this for weeks. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Ward Stamer. Ward is the mayor of Barrier, British Columbia, and I'm pleased to welcome him to the show. Mayor Stamer, thank you for coming on today. You're welcome. Good morning, Mike. What did you think of the announcement yesterday? Are you pleased with this? Well, I am. I think you summed it up finally. I Hopefully it'll, it'll bring the resources, additional resources that we need. And also I'm curious when he mentioned about the, uh, you know, the accommodations, you know, where are those accommodations going to be? We, we hear that a lot of these hotels and motels don't have enough cleaning staff and those kinds of things. You know, we need to be able to have a full-scale plan on if all of a sudden the winds do change direction, where are these people going to go? You know, Calumps is already full from the evacuees from the Lytton Fire, uh, Merritt as well. They're getting, some people are getting bussed down to Chilliwack. So I'm really curious to know where exactly all this extra accommodation is going to come from if we do have to. What is the situation on the ground right now in, in your area? I know the community of Barrier, you guys have gone through hell with some of these earlier wildfires in past years. What's it like right now? Uh, today it's pretty good, Mike. I mean, the smoke isn't that bad, but the winds are starting to pick up. And, you know, we've been fortunate. That was a long time ago, but there's other communities that have suffered a lot more since then. I mean, I talked to contacts in 100 Mile. They're very concerned right now with the amount of fires that they have. We're looking at that big Sparks Lake fire that's not that far from Barrier in the Bonaparte Plateau. Uh, the West Wolf fire is concerning. Uh, you know, it's basically still out of control, and they've extended the evacuation alert all the way through Monty Lake and that whole uh, Paxton Valley area. And remember, there's some major infrastructure in Westwold, as, as we all know. Those major hydro lines that come from the Revelstoke and Micah Dams that feed down in the lower mainland goes right through where that fire is. And we certainly don't want to have any impact with that. And the same is with, you know, Port of Vancouver, with uh, modes mm. of transportation. You know, we need those goods and services across Canada. We need the highways to stay open so that the trucks can go across the border and brings us our food and groceries and that to our, our grocery stores. It's all tied together, and that's why it's kind of kind of uh, hard to be just standing here right now looking around sort of waiting, because that's kind of how I feel right now. Okay, speaking to Ward Stamer, the mayor of Barrier, B.C., a state of emergency from the wildfires declared in the province now. About nearly 300 fires burning. Many communities are under evacuation orders or evacuation alerts to be ready to pick up and leave at a moment's notice. Let me play another clip here for you, uh, Ward, from the public safety minister yesterday for your thoughts. This is Mike Farnworth here warning people, be prepared to evacuate. Here's what he had to say. So I want to, again, ask anyone who may be threatened by wildfire this summer 
to get an evacuation plan ready. Contact friends and family to ensure you have somewhere to go should the worst happen. Heed the alerts and evacuation orders. While the province will continue to support anyone in need of emergency support services, having a plan will expedite care for those who have no other option. And if you have the opportunity and means, please do what you can to fire smart your property, whether that's trimming trees, clearing grass and gutters, and helping your neighbors. Okay, so you heard him describe there that people should have an evacuation plan, try and figure out whether somewhere you can go. But of course, not everyone has relatives they can uh, rely on for accommodation. People, if they are displaced, if they are evacuated, they may be looking for a place to stay. Uh, Mayor Ward Stamer, you mentioned uh, a little earlier about your concerns around this plan. What are your thoughts on the potential for large-scale evacuations, and where are people supposed to go if that happens? Well, that, that's a concern, Mike, and, and the minister is correct. Everyone should have an evacuation plan, and there's good information you know, on, on the websites, the government websites here in, in the district, uh, barrier website, TNRD websites. There's some good information for people to quickly look on online and, and just to come up with a plan. And you're right about the mass evacuations. I asked a question last night. You know, if, if uh, there was 10,000 people that had to uh, evacuate from Kamloops last night, where exactly would they go? And I'm not sure yeah. if anybody really knows the answer, but I know there's areas of land that we could probably identify without vegetation or make sure there isn't any vegetation and have maybe some those preparations made a, ahead of time. And if we're wrong, then all we have to do is, you know, re- recede them. But I think we should be thinking outside the box a little bit just in case, you know, we do have to mass evacuate we should make sure that we have a place to go. Okay, we already have the Canadian military involved in some of the logistics here in fighting these fires. Do you believe that there should be a, a larger military response maybe in, in helping people um, if they do have to evacuate? I do, I do, and I, we asked for it back at the TNRD on Thursday again, Mike, but also yeah. we need extra security. You know, we've, we've got uh, the RCMP and, and that stretched to the limit trying to protect not only people in their homes, but access. We really don't need people going uh, back and forth in the backcountry and getting trapped and then us having to come and try to rescue them. We need, you know, checkpoints. We need ways of making sure that there's more boots on the ground. And then if we had a lightning storm that came through, say, last night, and there's more boots on the ground and they see the smoke, they can, you know, phone it in, get a GPS coordinate, and we can hit it hard. So I think the more help, the better right now. Okay, speaking of Ward Stamer, the mayor of Barrier, B.C., last question for you. There is very likely a federal election looming here in the country. I know that you uh, have declared your intention to seek the nomination for uh, the federal conservative party in the Kamloops riding there. What are your thoughts on the potential for uh, a snap election here to be called by Justin Trudeau? Do you, do you think that we should make sure that these fire emergencies are over before we go into an election? Do you have any thoughts on that? Absolutely. I don't think that was the time to be having a federal election when we're trying to protect ourselves. But that wouldn't surprise me if he did, and that's why we're, we're prepared as well at the local level. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I've been a mayor for only three years now, but I've been in politics for quite some time. And, you know, I think I'm ready for the challenge and for the challenges if all of a sudden we have to go from being a mayor to being our member of parliament. I'm ready for the job, but I don't really think it's the time right now to be calling a federal election when this is going on. And this isn't only just happening in B.C. We've got fires in Manitoba. We've got fires across the prairies. I don't think this is the right time to be having a federal election, quite frankly. Uh, okay, we're watching it closely. Thank you for your time today. Thanks, Mike.
All right, welcome back to the show. Phone lines are open. Call me with your thoughts on this state of emergency to fight the wildfires in B.C. Now, if you're in the interior, I'd love to hear from you. What are the conditions like today? 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your phone. Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth yesterday was asked, why did it take so long to declare this state of emergency? Local leaders in the interior have been asking for this for weeks. Here's what he had to say. Decision to go to a state of emergency, as I've uh, indicated in uh, in previous uh, uh, interviews, has been based on advice that I receive from the experts at uh, BC Wildlife, uh, BC Wildfire Service, uh, and EMBC. Uh, based on the briefing that I had last night about the, uh, the 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 weather events that we're facing and the potential for significant uh, winds and uh, dry lightning and the and the potential for for uh, extremely aggressive fires as a result of that, uh, the decision was made to uh, in, in put in place the uh, the the state of uh, provincial emergency. Okay, Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth speaking yesterday. Let's check in with Peter Millibar now, Liberal MLA Kamloops North Thompson in the fire zone. There, Peter, thanks for coming on again. Absolutely. Always good to be on. Okay. Your thoughts on the state of emergency? Well, it, it's great that it's been called. It's unfortunate it took such a, a chorus of people uh, hollering for one all across all political stripes, contrary to what the Premier has said. And, um, and you know, what we were hearing for weeks, uh, especially from even people uh, within the fire service and EMBC and that coming out of meetings with ranchers and other contractors was that they're stretched. They, they need some help, but no one wanted to publicly speak. Um, I, I've talked to media that have been told the same things where people would say it off the record and not want to be uh, have any quotes associated to them. So the weather excuse, um, fine, I guess the Premier needed an excuse um, to dig himself out of the hole. Uh, the end result is uh, the state of emergency that was much needed uh, actually came about. Well, what kind of help are people looking for and how could a state of emergency assist them? Well, that, that's the great irony. I mean, we, we heard the Premier uh, say exact opposite uh, of what uh, Minister Farmer said yesterday, all leading up to this, in terms of what a state of emergency would not do, and then uh, what we've been saying would do in terms of expedite things, uh, cut through red tape, uh, add, add some more capacity in terms of help and support for evacuees. Uh, all of those types of things that we were saying all along that were dismissed by the Premier were then voiced uh, by Minister Farnwick yesterday to to justify the calling of one. Um, and so that's really what it will do. Uh, there is no space for evacuees right now in a large portion of this province. Uh, Minister Farnwick yesterday alluded to uh, people from the Oliver Soyuz area. Um, you know, there's still space up in Prince George. Is, is the Minister honestly suggesting people drive 10 to 12 hours uh, uh, through questionable areas where highways may or may not be open and closed because of wildfires through Highway 97 and in those areas um, to try to seek uh, evacuee accommodations. I mean, it is it has been growing over the last few weeks. That is why we are bringing it forward. These were concerns from our constituents and for the Premier, frankly, for two weeks to try to make it sound partisan. I don't know how it's partisan for us to actually convey what we're hearing from our constituents. Well, you even had the local NDP candidate in the last election there in your riding this week calling on Horgan to take action. So, you know, and it wasn't just the Liberals, it was the Green Party. I mean, we had industry associations. I had the head of the Ranchers Association on the show this week pleading for a state of emergency. We've got lots of municipal governments that have been asking for this for weeks. So, yeah, no, I don't think this was necessarily a partisan power play here at all. This was a very wide section of people who were calling for this. Let me uh, get your thoughts on the resources on the ground to 
fight these fires and get your thoughts on this. There's Mike Farnworth, the public safety minister, yesterday talking about the, the difficulty of getting firefighters on the ground here. Have a listen and then get your thoughts. Given the wildfire danger across Canada and the Pacific Northwest and the complications that come with COVID-19, it has been challenging to source trained crews. At this time, more than 3,180 firefighters and resource staff are currently actively engaged in fighting fires in all fire regions in the province. This includes 1,080 contractors and 135 out-of-province resources. I want to assure British Columbians that we are deploying all available personnel and equipment to fight the fires in communities across our province. Every opportunity is being pursued. Okay, is there anything else that the government could or should be doing right now, Peter Millibar, to fight these fires? Well, it sounds like they've uh, re-engaged Australia, and, and uh, a couple of things with that. We have known uh, COVID would be an issue for bringing in firefighters for quite some time now, one would hope. Um, so one would have hoped that that had been getting worked out uh, well in advance. Uh, but I noticed yesterday it went from saying Australia was a complete no-go uh, to after the state of emergency is announced that uh, Australian is re-engaged uh, with discussions with us. And so that's another spin-off uh, when you're talking to outside jurisdictions trying to get their, their manpower here. Um, you know, when you're not in a state of emergency, you can understand why they would kind of look and say, well, why are we going through all of these mass donations if there's not even an emergency called? Um, so again, uh, you know, I know resources will be stretched. Uh, the people that are currently fighting are doing everything they can possibly do on the ground. I have no doubt about that. Um, but they're going to spell off. They're going to time out of their okay. time soon. And, uh, and that's why these extra resources coming in and, and efforts need to be done now and should have been done the last two weeks as well to get those extra backup people here. Okay, we just got a minute left. Let's squeeze a call in real quickly. Glenn has been waiting in Maple Ridge. Glenn, please go quickly. Go ahead. Yeah, I just want to say, of course, we know the interior is tinder dry, but uh, the the mayor was uh, and, and was saying, what more can we do? Well, I'll tell you what we can do. I live in a very wooded area here in Maple Ridge. I back into a park. I'm on small acreage. I'm very close to town. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of homes around me. Uh, the grasses are around in the park and, and on people's lawns are dried out. Um, we're on metered water. So, um, I think in a state of emergency, perhaps perhaps uh, the the, uh, the state of metered water can be uh, okay. uh, waived waived so that people can keep their property. Interesting idea, Pete. Interesting idea, Glenn. Thanks for calling up and sharing that. And uh, we're out of time, but I want to thank Peter Millibar for coming on. Peter, thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the federal government's gun buyback program now. The government getting set to buy back thousands of guns now declared illegal under the Trudeau government's new gun control measures. This is going to be an expensive proposition. New estimates out that it could cost three quarters of a billion dollars to buy back these guns. Another new report, already two million dollars has already been spent in setting up the buyback office before a single gun is already bought back. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Rod Giltaka. Rod is the CEO of the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. Rod, thank you for doing this. Are you surprised that the government has already spent $2 million here on this program? Well, it's, it's not going to be surprising. I mean, the, uh, the long gun registry was supposed to cost two million dollars it ended up costing two billion dollars so this is this is uh, consistent with their record i guess 
Right, and if you take a look at the overall projected cost of the gun buyback program, uh, this is starting to go over budget as well, too, right? I mean, we had an estimate that it could be, what, three quarters of a billion dollars to buy back all these guns? Yeah, I think it's going to be a lot more than that, because even the estimate from the Parliamentary Budget Office didn't include the actual program itself, only the purchase of the firearms. So uh, it could be a billion, two billion, who knows? Whoa. Okay. How many guns is the government looking to buy back here? Well, they don't know. None of those guns were registered. Well, not none, but they, uh, there's about 100 and 120,000, I think, most of them AR-15s, but the rest of them are non-registered. And so they're going to have varying degrees of participation in the program, or maybe yeah. a lot of people are going to cash in. I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there are conflicting estimates of how many of these weapons are being targeted by the gun back, buyback program. But do you think that some gun owners will simply refuse to sell their guns back to the government? would think most will simply refuse and hang on to them. Yeah, and you're allowed to do that under the program? Uh, we don't know exactly what that program's going to look like yet. The uh, The Liberal Party is, has, has floated several ideas, whether they'll let people keep them via grandfathering, whether they'll have to be deactivated, whether they don't know what they're doing. They, they made a promise for political reasons, and now they're living with it, and it's messy. Just going back to the cost of the gun buyback program, estimated at $756 million. You mentioned that would just be the projected cost to buy these guns. That does not include the bureaucracy to run the program. Is that why you say it could end up costing a lot more? Absolutely. There's a lot of variables there. Whether or not people participate en masse with this, um, we don't know what the bureaucratic costs are going to be, just like the long gun registry. Um, we just don't know any of these things. And, you know, the, the saddest thing about all of this is this is an effort to get my guns, which have never been a problem, and and 100,000 people like me, and the people in affected communities, communities affected by violence, they get nothing. And this is, you know, it's everybody loses in this scheme, and, and that's one of the most frustrating things. Okay, what percentage of gun crimes that are committed in Canada are committed by legal gun owners with legally owned guns do we know well if you're talking about license are in the order of one half of one percent so <laughs> you know we keep saying over and over again that we're the safest demographic and the numbers prove that so again this is why it's so frustrating uh, to have to witness what they're doing yeah, so would you therefore argue that it would make more sense that instead of spending a three quarters of a billion dollars or maybe a lot more, buying back legal guns from law-abiding gun owners, that it would make more sense to spend that money going after illegal guns or criminals using guns? Well, any clear-thinking, honest person would 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 say, yeah, go after criminal use of firearms, no matter where it is, just go after it and root it out. And it makes for a better country. It uh, it stops the division between gun owners and non-gun owners and, and conservatives against liberals and men against women, and just the division is insane. So stop doing those things for political reasons and do something beneficial for society. Yeah, what could be a better priority in your mind? Like I saw one report that, suggested that if you took the money that is being budgeted for this gun buyback program and spent it instead on hiring more police officers, 
you could hire over 1,200 police officers and employ them for five years. Do you think that would be, I mean, that's one example of maybe a, what you would regard as a better use of the money? Well, that's a perfect example. Another example is if you want to save people's lives and increase these, the quality of life for Canadians, there are people that wait three years for an MRI in this country. There are, there are a lack of women's shelters for victims of domestic violence. No way for women to rebuild their lives after going through something like that. There's so many ways that they could spend this money to make things better, and they won't, because it's not about public safety, it's not about quality of life for Canadians, it's about politics. And that's why it's so hard to watch this. Okay, Rod, thanks for coming on with your thoughts today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Okay, that was Rod Giltaka, CEO of the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights, talking about the federal gun buyback program here. Let's get the other side of it now. My guest is Pam DeMoff, M Liberal MP for Oakville, North Burlington. She is a member of the Parliamentary Committee on Public Safety and National Security, and I'm very pleased to welcome her. Thanks for a lot for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Okay, I know you were listening to that interview there with Rod Giltaka, and I know you're, you're familiar with his arguments against the program. What can you tell Canadians and to people listening today in defense of this uh, gun buyback program the government's bringing out here? Well, a couple of things, actually. Uh, there were a lot of numbers that were floated around there um, based on the public parliamentary budget officer's report. But I think, you know, public safety has said 150,000 firearms. But when you're the number you were quoting there with Rod is based on the estimate from the firearms industry, which is about 518,000 guns. So, you know, there there was a lot of conflating of different uh, numbers there. Um, But I think, you know, how what is the price of a life? The people who were gunned down at the mosque in Quebec City, the people that were gunned down at Ecole Polytechnique, those were military-style assault rifles. And Canadians, overwhelmingly, 80% of Canadians support a ban of military-style assault rifles that were built for war, that were built to kill as many people as they could as quickly as possible. And I, 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 Canadians support this measure. Right. Okay. So let's talk about the money and the numbers there for a minute, because the yeah. parliament, the parliamentary budget officer had estimated that the cost to buy back these guns could be seven hundred and fifty-six million dollars. So I guess the the well, argument, no, just to, but they said it was between forty-seven and seven fifty-six, depending on which estimate that you use. Okay. So it's up to seven hundred and fifty-six million, right? Could be that high. Right. Well, based on our estimate of how many firearms we think are out there, it would be closer to forty-seven million. If you use the number provided by the firearms industry, it's closer to seven fifty-six. Right. Of course, a lot of people listening to this might get some deja vu to the long gun registry, which ballooned massively over budget. Right. So, what can you say to people that you know the cost of this won't go skyrocketing off the rails here? Well, I go back to: how, Are you putting a price on lives? And, and you know what? We are investing in guns and gangs. Um, there's this perception that there's one solution to a problem with firearms. Yeah. Um, in the last parliament, it was $327 million. There was $250 million in the fall economic statement. And I think you need to remember that 75% of people who die by firearms in this country are dying by suicide. Mm. Okay, I guess I I guess when we when we crunch the numbers here on the cost of this, I, I I'm I'm not sure what, when you say okay, what's the what's the value of a life? How much do you want to spend on, to save a life? Which I I understand that, 
but I guess what your opponents would argue is that if we really want to stop gun crime, we want to save lives, that the money could be spent more effectively. So instead of spending hundred, potentially hundreds of millions of dollars in buying back legal weapons, why not dedicate that, that same amount of money in going after criminals and illegal guns and stop gun smuggling across the border or stop the criminals who are using illegal guns instead or hire more police officers as, as a but choice, as a choice for that. government? We're doing all of that. But you could do more, but though, you, right, if you, if you well, dedicated these funds to even more uh, law enforcement. So it, but you're using the top end um, price, and the the shootings in Quebec City and in Montreal were done by law abiding gun owners. Those were not illegal guns. So the, things like extended background checks that we've brought in, um, there have been a number of measures that have been opposed by the the gun lobby, by the Conservative Party, and the preference for them is to arm citizens. And if that was going to keep us safer. The United States would be the safest country in the world by arming citizens. Right. So we have a we have a very different point of view. And the fact is, is that overwhelmingly Canadians are in support of this. If you're talking about forty seven million dollars on the buyback, we don't know yet. The buyback mm. program is still being developed. Right. So this report that was done has been heavily influenced by the firearms industry and provided a range. The gun lobby only uses the top range, and you tend to be doing that too. Um, the well, lower no, I'm, range, qu- <laughs> I'm quoting the, right? uh, the parliamentary budget officer, right? right? But Who's but it's independent 47. officer of the parliament. Yeah, but, it's, but the range was from $47 million in a report that was really influenced by the firearms industry. So, you know, we're re- going to be responsible with, with the money. We're not, we're not trying to um, never have any intent to waste money. But I'm going to go back to keeping Canadians safe. Yeah. And the only way to deal with this is to deal it in a multi-pronged way. So at the border through guns and gangs strategy and through things like extended background checks, through investments in um, violence against gender-based violence. Um, if, if there's a firearm in the home, a woman is 500 times more likely to be killed. Why don't we ever talk about those people who are killed by, by suicide and in domestic violence situations? Why don't we ever talk about those, which is where the vast majority of people in this country die? Speaking to Liberal MP Pam DeMoff about the, uh, the federal gun buyback program here, when when you have legal gun owners who are opposed to the program and, and they listen they listen to your description of the program and description of these guns as these are weapons of war that are designed to kill as many people as quickly as possible, I, I know that you know they will get angry at that description, saying, "Well, actually, we're talking about semi-automatic." weapons here like fully automatic machine guns which i i would most i think would reasonably you could describe as a gun that's designed to kill as many people as as quickly as possible as a fully automatic weapon those are already prohibited in the country right so the government here is prohibiting semi-automatic weapons that require a separate pull of the trigger to fire a bullet with like six bullets in a in a in a clip Right. So, what how happened? You, at, what yeah. happened in Saint Croix, Quebec, at the mosque? No, oh, I, I understand that, but I'm just saying that when the government describes these weapons as these are designed to kill as many people as possible in the shortest amount of time possible, that sounds like a description of a, a fully automatic weapon, which are already banned. Is my point? 
Well, the shootings right. at Polytechnique and at the mosque were both with guns that we are going to be banning. Right. And there were there were people who were targeted and killed in in a very short amount of time. So I'm not going to get into technicalities on this, but these are these these are maybe you can tell me why do people need these weapons? Well, you know, I'm not a gun owner myself, but for the people who have them, they they take them to firing ranges, right? They for so 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 I, I mean, when Rod was on, he was saying that we're not we don't know what people are going to be able to do if they've got these guns. I mean, right. we have said they can keep them, but they can't use them, sell them, or bequeath them. So if they want to keep them and bring them out every once in a while and look at them, they can. The executive director of the National Firearms Association lives in my riding. He's got two AR-15s, and he's been very clear that you will have to pull it out of his cold, dead hands before he will turn them in. And he's also called to bring back guillotines for the Public Safety Committee. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a fair amount of... Um, um, rhetoric that is out there for the firearms right. industry or the gun and lobby um, that's just not true and that is riling people up on a program that um, Canadians, four out of five Canadians support this. Okay, well, I'm glad you were able to come on today with the other side of it, and I'm grateful for your time. Thank you for coming on. No worries. Thanks for uh, having uh, me. All right, welcome back. Are you in the market for a new or used vehicle? Are you looking for a family-friendly vehicle? Which is the better choice, an SUV or a minivan? All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Dan Alika. Dan is a car reviewer and writer for autotrader.ca, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Dan, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me. Okay, Dan, I'm a big fan of your work, and I enjoyed the uh, the article you wrote for Auto Trader this week uh, comparing the SUV versus the minivan as a family-friendly choice in a vehicle. And I guess this is kind of the eternal debate, SUVs versus minivan. The minivan used to be very popular, right, but they're kind of falling off a bit? Yeah, you know, I mean, my generation, I grew up cruising across Canada in a minivan. You know, it was it was all the rage, and... I understand people aren't so keen on them anymore, but I really think, you know, it's, it's families in particular are doing themselves a disservice by at least not considering them. I understand if maybe you don't want to favor them, you're a little put off, but it's really one of those things like the proof is in the pudding. Once you check it out, it's hard to, to say no with just that added versatility you get from a minivan. Okay, I remember when uh, my kids were really little, so when they were just toddlers, they were just born, I had two boys, and we needed a new vehicle, so my wife and I decided we went with the minivan, okay, because we just, well, you know, it just seemed like, (laughs) we liked the sliding doors on the side, and I thought, okay, this is going to be a a back saver here for getting these kids in in and out of this car, and it really was a big help in sort of loading kids when they're really, really little in a car seat when you got those sliding doors. So that was pretty cool. Now, we ended up buying the um, the Honda Odyssey, and uh, I'll tell you, the thing was a tank, man. Like, it just kept going. It was a really good quality vehicle. Your thoughts? Yeah, they're fantastic. I, yeah. I, you know, I agree with that, with loading kids into the back, with, you know, with climbing in as, as the kids get older, getting into that third row. And then the other thing that I think is kind of one of those underappreciated factors of the sliding doors is it means, you know, the kids aren't going to, swing the door open and ding the car parked next to you at the grocery store or at the mall and you have to leave a note explaining it's 
you know, there, there are just so, so many layers to the practicality. Yeah, and it's also uh, pretty good for transporting stuff, too, if you get the fold-down back seats. You can pile a lot of junk and stuff in the back for, for moving stuff around should you need that kind of capacity, which I've done with our minivan over the years. Okay, so that's the minivan. What about the SUV? The minivan is, is going down in popularity. Are SUVs on the rise? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, it's it's apparent with, with so many brands phasing out, you know, small cars in favor of small SUVs and new SUVs being unveiled all the time. I think, uh, you know, our, our research internally, we're, we're seeing like 40% uh, of, of shoppers are, are considering SUVs. Um, really? They're just so immensely popular. And I think one of the reasons why, right, is that perceived safety of all-wheel drive. But don't forget, you can get all-wheel drive uh, with minivans and also, you know, that elevated ride height, people like sitting a little bit taller and feeling like they have a more commanding view of the road. So those are definitely favors towards towards the minivan. If you know, if I'm being fair, I'm not totally biased in favor of minivans. Right. Okay. The the SUV has got what more headroom typically? No, it's it's just more it, like it, the ride height is a little bit a little bit taller. So I think if you look at you know the the Toyota Sienna versus the Toyota Highlander or the Toyota Forerunner. You know, those SUVs have a couple inches minimum more oh, ground okay. clearance. Yeah. Um, okay. So you're inside, just riding. A, you're riding a little higher. For, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But inside, you know, the minivan has has the space in its favor. Yeah, you got a lot of space in the minivan too. How about the power of an SUV? Are, are SUVs typically more powerful engine than the minivan? Yeah. Generally speaking, I mean, you know, just the the options at least uh, are available there, right? So if you look at Again, looking at the Toyota lineup, you know, the, the new Sienna is hybrid only, whereas the Highlander, you can get with that same hybrid powertrain or you can get it with a with a gas-powered V6. So if you're towing, you know, typically SUVs can, can tow more. Something like the Highlander or let's say a Ford Explorer, like you're looking at around 5,000 pounds versus a minivan, usually right around 3,500. So that's another, you know, a, another uh, kind of point in an SUV's favor. Okay, is there kind of a, a stigma with the minivan as being kind of a suburban, bland vehicle? And maybe as the kids get a little older, maybe some families start thinking more of an SUV-type vehicle. Yeah, I think, you know, that's been one of those things. It's the same thing happened with the wagon, right? My parents grew <laughs> up with, with wagons, and then, you know, they went to, to minivans, and now you're seeing those same kids that grew up in minivans switching to SUVs, I, I'd love to, to hear from more people about what is it exactly about a minivan that they find so uncool. Because in my <laughs> opinion, you know, I mean, an SUV isn't cool just because it looks a little bit more rugged and rides a little higher. So I'm always curious to kind of know what, what people think or what is it about a minivan that's so off-putting. <laughs> okay. Well, what about the SUV in terms of... Um uh, do you have more options to go, let's say, off-roading? Like, let's say you wanted to go camping and you wanted to drive up a logging road or something, a remote campsite or something. I mean, you're better off in an SUV doing that, trying to pull that Absolutely. off in a minivan, right? Yeah, yeah. that's that's always going to be one of those things, right? Even if you don't do it, it's, you know, that ruggedness has its appeal and, and yeah. you know, just the idea of being able to, right? It's not actually that you're going out, you know, and, and adventuring down these logging roads, but it's the idea that if yeah. you wanted to, if I wanted you to, could do it. I could yeah. do it if I wanted. Okay. Yeah. Okay. What is the most popular, uh, more popular SUV models out there right now? I mean, if you're talking about small SUVs, it you know it really begins and ends with the Toyota Rav Four, which is built okay. in Canada. It's a it's a great great little SUV. Now it's only got room for five, 
Um, but it's, you know, available a number of ways. So you can get it kind of from, from a base, you know, just run of the mill front wheel drive version. There's a TRD off road version that has an even more elevated ride height. It's a little bit more rugged. And then there's hybrid and plug in hybrid options. Um, on the, on the three row front, a ton of, you know, if you want to call the minivan alternatives. Uh, so you have stuff like the Toyota Highlander, the Hyundai Palisade, uh, the Kia Telluride, the Ford Explorer. I mean, the, the options are endless, whereas minivans, you know, there's really only about five left. It used to be a really <laughs> robust segment, and, and it's just whittled down to a very few. Yeah, yeah. No, the poor old minivan, it really is sort of going down, it seems. Um, you mentioned the option for a hybrid on an SUV. What are the choices like for an electric vehicle or, or a hybrid vehicle on an, in an SUV right now? I mean, those, it's, it's endless, right? I mean, you have, you know, virtually every automaker either is, is a player in the hybrid or electric uh, market or is targeting it in the very near future. So again, if you're talking about, you know, just conventional hybrids, you have ones like the, like that, the Ford Explorer hybrid that was new for this year. You have the Toyota Highlander. But then on the minivan side, you have both the Sienna, which is a dedicated hybrid now, uh, or there's also the Canadian made Chrysler Pacifica, which is a plug-in hybrid. So you get that added benefit of being able to plug in and cruise around emissions free, you know, for, for most of your commute to work and then get there, plug in and, yeah. you know, you could essentially not burn any gas with that van, which is very cool. Dan, you have such a cool job because you've got a front row to all the auto trends here in the country at Auto Trader there. So when you're watching these trends right now, like is the future electric or more and more people going with an electric vehicle? Do you think and do you think that's really, really going to keep keep going on the rise? Yeah, I think so. You know, my perspective is that it's great. I love to see people, you know, adopting electric or, or looking to electric, considering it for the first time. The trouble is going to be infrastructure, right? The federal government has announced that, you know, in, in the not too distant future, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to buy new gas powered vehicles, only electric vehicles, which is great. I love that initiative. I do think it needs to be that kind of top down approach, yeah. but without the infrastructure across the country. Last time I was on, we talked about it. We took a lot of listener calls about how do I get from, you know, point A to point B if I want to go on a road trip in an electric vehicle. Right. That I think is 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 kind of the it's not a matter of, you know, if you build it, they will come like you need the infrastructure in place to be able to charge and it needs to be reliable, too, because without that, you know, it's hard to, to convince someone who who wants to go on those longer trips that an electric vehicle is the best bet moving forward. All right, welcome back. Talking new vehicles, minivans, SUVs. My guest, Dan Alika from Auto Trader. The phone lines are open. Hey, Dan, just before I take a phone call here, a listener sends me a message on Twitter here while uh, during the commercial break. Uh, you forgot the other big sellers in Canada, the Ford F-150, the Chevy Silverado, the Dodge Ram. I mean, the trucks still rule, right? Pickup trucks rule. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, yeah. if you want to talk about, you know, like the Canadian market is dominant, like, the, the F-150 is the best seller. The Ram 1500 is the second best seller. The top yeah. five, four of the top five best-selling vehicles in Canada are trucks. Are the so trucks, we can't yeah. ignore those, but I mean, <laughs> you know, if, if we're talking about kind of more family-friendly SUVs and minivans, they're still the way to go. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's go to some phone calls here to see what people have to say. Uh, Richard on the line from Bowen Island. Hi, Richard. 
Hey, good morning, uh, Dan. Good morning, Mike. I just wanted to uh, put a plug in for the minivan. I uh, uh, remember getting it in 2006 and still have it. You know, the kids were young. It was great for all the reasons that you outlined earlier. But I haven't had the back seats in it in quite some time. And, I, you know, this thing's like a truck for me. I put four by eight sheets of plywood back there. Uh, yeah. An amazing vehicle. So can keep going with that. But wanted to say uh, as well, we got an electric vehicle about a year and a half ago. And it's a fantastic, uh, reliable, uh, money-saving way to, to get around. We just got back uh, uh, from Kelowna. You know, I had a quick pit stop in Hope for 25 minutes and uh, cruising electric all the way. And okay. you're talking about pickups. Uh, F-150 is now available or will soon be as an electric vehicle. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Okay, Richard, thanks a lot for the call. Yeah, if you look a lot along the spectrum of the most popular vehicles in Canada historically, Dan, I mean, you mentioned the F-150. So you can get an electric one, uh, F-150. You can get an electric truck, right? You can get an electric uh, Mustang. Yeah, like the, you know, the electric F-150, the F-150 Lightning, it's called. I saw it. I saw a pre-production model a couple weeks ago. Uh, I'm very excited about it. I know, you know, Ford, Ford Canada doesn't, won't disclose how many deposits it's taken, but uh, the the product manager told me he's very happy with the number uh, and understandably, you know, and I think the tide is turning, right? So you have the F-150, you have, you know, the Rivian, you have Canoe, there, there are so many electric trucks on the horizon. Which one is going to be first to market is anyone's guess. Uh, if I were a betting man, I'd probably say the F-150, but regardless i think it's it's a you know it's a good shift for the industry as a whole and don't forget there's also the hybrid f-150 that you can buy you know right now and that burns as much gas as a as an suv okay rod on the line in maple ridge hi rod hey how you doing mate i'm good so i I went through uh many years with minivans with the family and all that uh and then eventually to um santa fe suv uh, bought a second one down the road as well too but uh uh beginning of uh, 2020 just before covid so now i call it a covid car uh is i bought myself a brand new uh subaru legacy sedan four-door all-wheel drive four-cylinder and one of the main reasons was because it was one of the top five or six sedans in uh auto trader and also uh gas mileage on my santa fe uh was 16 miles to the gallon and this guy's 28 so I don't see a lot of Subaru sedans out there, but I'm happy with mine. Okay. Dan, your thoughts? Yeah, that's another, you know, I'm a big, big fan of, of sedans. You can go on, on autotrader.ca slash editorial. There's, I just did a review of the Honda Accord, which I, I consider one of the best cars built in the last 20 years, hands down. I think, you know, if you're overlooking that, it is a huge, huge mistake, especially if you're looking for a commuter car, you're spending a lot of the time you know, by yourself or maybe with just one or two other people, it is great. And, you know, to that point, like the, the fuel consumption is, is fantastic. And the Subaru legacy, yeah, it's, there's some sort of, you know, voodoo going on there. How, how Subaru manages that kind of fuel consumption with a full-time all-wheel drive system is really impressive. And that goes for the SUVs as well. Okay, star 9898 is the number on your cell. Star 9898. Grace in North Vancouver. Hi, Grace. Yes, good morning. Good morning, Mike. Uh, Good morning, Dan. I bought um, my first uh, vehicle uh, in 2004, and I still have it. It's a Kia Sedona minivan. I enjoy it immensely because I travel back and forth to the Gulf Islands, 
I can pack a whole bunch of stuff in there, and um, I'm I will not get rid of it until it quits on me or until I can buy um, the Chrysler. I heard the Chrysler's putting out the EV, the um, electric minivan. Okay, Dan, yeah, we know about that. I love the yeah, it's a plug-in hybrid. So, you know, basically you're getting all the benefits of, of your Sedona with that battery pack under the floor. It doesn't impact, uh, you know, any of the interior dimensions, and it's it's great. And, you know, I, I think I can't I, – I believe it's about 40 kilometers or so of electric range, um, you know, per, per charge. So you charge it overnight, you get 40 kilometers of dedicated electric range, and then it switches to, a, to like, a conventional hybrid. So it's going to operate mm-hmm. on that – on that battery pa- or on the electric motor, sorry, and the gas engine and kind of switch back and forth. Okay, Dan, we just got 30 seconds left here. Um, when you go on the Auto Trader website, I was on there the other night, you can really go down a rabbit hole there and spend hours just clicking around and looking at different vehicles for sale. But what is the, what would you, how would you sum up how the market is right now for used vehicles? It's still like red hot. We got 30 seconds here. Yeah, you know, it's definitely hot. You're seeing some pressure. Um, you know, with the new car market and the used car market and coming out of the pandemic, right, people are back to, you know, to, to looking to get to work, maybe something new. But I mean, it's, you know, it's just one of those things, right? It ebbs and flows a bit. So right now we're in a bit of a, you know, hot stretch. It's going to cool down a bit in the future. And, and it's just going to kind of keep, keep flip-flopping back and forth like that. Dan, you do an awesome job over there. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much.